thumbs up. Hey, awesome. I really appreciate our tech team. Thank you. All right, we are going into episode four of this sermon series called The Plan. And the idea behind this series is we're going through the entire story of the Bible. Seemingly one chapter at a time, does it feel like right now? I promise it speeds up. Um, But we're going through the entire story of the Bible, and we're focusing on the one story. We're recognizing that the Bible is a single story made up of many small stories, but that are all focusing on the same plot. And that major story is what we are a part of. I'm not a part of the story of David and Goliath, but I do have a part in the story of Scripture that reaches from creation to, to glory. And so knowing this story helps us to know what we're called to do. It also help, equips us to be able to invite other people into the story and into the story of God. So today we are on episode four called The Tower. Uh, we started off in episode one talking about how every story is about a person doing a thing. And in the Bible, the person doing the thing is God. And the thing that he's doing is the same throughout the whole story of the Bible. And this is how we've been summarizing it. The Bible is the story of God's plan to establish a place full of people who live out their purpose in his presence. So in Genesis 1, God makes the world, uh, the heavens and the earth, and then he puts people in it and he gives them this purpose to rule over the earth. And then he comes and dwells in the world with them uh, on day seven. Then in Genesis 2 and 3, we looked at how God made a specific place, the Garden of Eden, puts two specific people there, Adam and Eve, gives them a specific purpose to tend that garden, and he lives in that garden with them until they mess things up by rebelling against God and ruling on their own behalf. And then God expels them from the garden because they've messed up the arrangement and the plan doesn't work when God doesn't let us bring our corruption into his plan and ruin the whole thing. He protects his plan from us and finds a way to bring us back into that plan. And so he exiles them, uh, uh, exiles Adam and Eve, and then their children, they start off with two sons, Cain and Abel. Cain kills Abel, and then last week we talked about the fact that Cain, God told Cain to wander, but God, Cain didn't trust God to protect him. And so instead, he settles down, he builds a city, and the city develops into this rebellious civilization that is so completely depraved that God has to wash the planet clean of them. And so that was the story that we looked at last week. Now, I told you last week that sometimes we aren't, we aren't necessarily going to cover all the Sunday school stories. We didn't cover Cain and Abel, except we did in the, unless you're listening to our Fully Grown podcast, uh, we covered that in episode two. And we're not going to cover the flood, because we went right up to the flood, but we didn't actually cover that story, and we're going to skip over it. So we're actually going to carry on with the aftermath of the flood. And that's because we're going to focus on the stages where God's plan is working and transitioning and and when people are butting up against God's plan. And so we're going to be going into the time after the flood when Noah and his family come off the ark, when they (laughs) disembark. And uh, I'm going to read you that section. I thought it was funny. And I'm going to read you that section, and while I'm reading, I want you to watch for these coordinates, okay? So, these are the coordinates of the plan so that you can get your bearings when you're reading a Bible story. People, who is the story about? Place, where is their home? Where are they made to be? Or what land does God give them? Presence is how can they meet with God? At that point, how can, where can they find God? And purpose, what did God tell them to do? So I'm going to read you parts of Genesis 8 and 9, and we're going to have you fill those parts out as we go. 
Then God said to Noah, Come out of the ark, you and your wife and your sons and their wives. Bring out every kind of living creature that is with you, the birds, the animals, and all the creatures that move along the ground, so they can multiply on the land and be fruitful and increase in number on it. So Noah came out together with his sons and his wife, and his wife and his sons' wives. Then God blessed Noah and his sons, saying to them, Be fruitful and increase in number and fill the land. The fear and dread of you will fall on all the beasts of the land and on all the birds in the sky, on every creature that moves along the ground, and on all the fish in the sea. They are given into your hands. Everything that lives and moves about will be food for you. Just as I gave you the green plants, now I give you everything. As for you, be fruitful and increase in number. Multiply on the land and subdue it. All right. You want to fill in? <laughs> People. Who's the story about? Noah and his family, right? It's Noah, his sons, their wives, and then it also talks about their generation. So we're looking at Noah's family, and in parts I skipped over, he says, you know, this is the covenant for, uh, for all flesh. You know, this is the covenant going forward. Uh, so it's Noah's family and, and all their descendants. Now, the place, where's their home? What land does he give them? Now, your Bible probably translated it differently than I did. In fact, the, my Bible translated it differently than I did. You'll notice that I changed the word to land. He gave them the land. In your Bible, it probably says the earth. Sometimes it says the world. And I changed that because, um, because when we think of earth, we often think of the planet as opposed to space. But that's not what the Hebrew word means. They didn't, they didn't have that in their imagination. They mean the land as opposed to the water. And really, they meant the land that stretches from like the Mediterranean Sea to, the, uh, to the, the, like Iran, and then up to the northern mountains and down to the Persian Gulf. That's what they are thinking of as the land. This will become relevant later. But basically, uh, he's given them the land. But he doesn't give them a specific location. Right before, God was in a specific location. For, from Adam and Eve until the flood, God had an address on earth. He was in the Garden of Eden. Uh, and they and he gave humanity a specific place where they were from. But now he's back to this Genesis one arrangement of just take the land. The land is for you. Spread out and multiply on it. Fill the land. No specific location. All right. Presence. How can they meet with God? Anybody get this? I don't see. You've already heard this. She's heard me do this lesson like eight times over the years. That silence is correct. No, it, doesn't, it doesn't tell us. In fact, there will be nothing in the story of Scripture about where God can be found on earth until we get to the book of Exodus. Nothing, nothing really concrete. There's no mention of God's presence in this section. I didn't skip over it. It's just not there. God tells them nothing about where he's going to be. Which, if you don't recognize that as a central element of God's plan, you won't recognize that it's missing. But it is. Remember that one of Cain's major problems with, going, uh, with being sent to wander is he's being removed from God's presence. As far as we know, the Garden of Eden is gone. It's never mentioned as a real, live place again after the flood. So it seems like the flood washed it away. But there's no new version. There's no new location. He, they are given no means to meet with God. Obviously, God comes to Noah, but there's no way that Noah can go to God. And that's important as we move into the final piece of the puzzle, which is their purpose. What was the purpose God gave them? 
Well, it's actually almost verbatim the purpose he gave them in Genesis 1, which is to rule over creation. In fact, you may have noticed if you were reading my translation and your translation at the same time, I put subdue in brackets um, because your translation probably says increase at the very end of that verse. But the oldest, trans, the oldest manuscripts we have, it's a one-letter difference to say uh, subdue, and that's, ex- and that's what they say in the oldest manuscripts, and that makes it verbatim what God said in Genesis 1. So he speaks to Noah and his family and basically gives them the exact same plan as before. Just get back to ruling on God's behalf. But what's the problem with that? Why is that kind of complicated at this point? What's the difference between uh, Genesis 1 and Genesis 9? We just talked about it. There's a whole piece of the plan missing, right? They're supposed to go about following the plan, and God's presence is nowhere to be found. They have no understanding of where it is, of how to access it. It's, it's gone. And that's a key element of, of how this is supposed to work. We talked last week about how you can't have just three parts of the plan. The whole thing is supposed to work together. So, what's implicit in this command to rule over creation is that they have to rule over creation, and while they're doing it, they have to wait for God to do whatever He's going to do. We don't know, because there's this whole piece missing. We're missing our relationship with God, our ability to access Him and, and, and live in His presence. And... Uh, we don't, he hasn't said when it's coming back. So they basically just have to wait. Now, it may feel like I'm reading into this, but I promise you'll see where this comes back, because this is an issue that's going on in this story that we're about to get to. So the, their, their purpose is to rule over creation and to wait for God to restore his presence. Now, the very next part after this passage that we read is a story of a weird encounter between Noah and his sons. We're not going to cover that, but we did talk about it in the Fully Grown podcast this last week, so you can find that on our website. Then, chapter 10 is a genealogy. We're not going to talk about that, but that'll be next week's, or this coming week's Fully Grown podcast. So we're going to go into the very next story after that. This is in chapter 11. Now the whole land had one language and a common speech. As people moved eastward, they found a plain in Shinar and settled there. Okay, here's why translating the land is important. Translating it as land as opposed to earth is helpful for me as I visualize this because it, it shows what's actually going on in this passage. I always imagined that there was one gathering of people, that Noah's descendants were one gathering, and as one gathering of people, they moved eastward and just found it the same group of people forming a new city. But that's not actually what's happening. Because it's weird to say the whole earth had one language if people aren't on the whole earth. Right? If there's one village worth of people, to say the whole earth had one language is just weird. To say, like it doesn't quite make sense if there's only one group. Because there, there are no human beings anywhere else. But it would also be weird to say that human beings spread all over the planet and then came back and gathered back together to go to the east, right? Like, if you're spread around the planet, going east is different for every person, right? Then you're just rotating around the earth, right? But they're not talking about the earth, they're talking about the land. When they say that the whole land had one language, that means there were people who had spread out over the land, which is this definable geographic area in the, the biblical mindset. All, it's all the land they knew about. So they called it the land. And all the land had one language means that the people had spread out over the land. But then they decided to go to the east of the land and gather together into one place. So 
So this is not just a migration. This is also a gathering. They're coming together into, to form one city. So they combine, and what they're doing is they want to get all their people in one place. They, have plan, they must have plans for that, and we're going to see what they are. But there's a reason why they all want to live in one place rather than across the land. So what they're doing is they're combining all their power and their resources in one big city. They're going from a dispersed people to one mega city of all the people. Because when they get everybody together, then they can do more. So, what more do they do when they're living together? Well, the first thing is, you know, uh, they, they move into a place that is uh, it's a plain. There's no mountains nearby. There's no good building materials. If you're in Israel, you build things out of rock and mortar. Your stone does really well. It lasts a long time. But if you're out in the plains, there's short on stone. So first, they invent something. They said to each other, come, let's make bricks and bake them thoroughly. They use brick instead of stone and tar for mortar. So they developed the technology to build buildings that will last. We do still have these, some baked brick buildings that lasted. Anything that wasn't baked wouldn't have lasted. And they, you know, that was the cheaper building material, and it's all gone. But they developed this technology. It was the closest you could do in this area to building, to building something out of stone, as you bake bricks. And why did they develop this technology of baked bricks? Well, because they wanted to build something. They said, come, let us build ourselves a city with a tower that reaches to the heavens so that we may make a name for ourselves. Otherwise, we will be scattered over the face of the whole land. Okay, so they don't like being scattered. So they gather together, and they want to make sure that they stay together, and so they build a city and a tower. Now, this whole story turns on understanding what the tower is for. And there are a few different theories. A few different interpretations. One theory is they, they're afraid of another flood, so they want to get as high off the ground as they can, which makes sense. Another theory has to do with them saying they want to make a name for themselves, so they're just, it's a monument to human greatness, and it's just sheer arrogance. Like, they just like, let's, let's see what we can do. Let's, you know, like, like kids. Like let's, it's what James does with his blocks. He's figured out that he can make the tallest tower he can if he does them one at a time, and so he'll stand on the couch and build and build and, you know, and just let's see how tall we can make it and see how big of a deal we can be. That could be part of it. Um, but it says it's supposed to be a head in the clouds, which a lot of, I've heard people say like they're trying to like storm heaven, they're trying to, to retake heaven or something like that. That's a little bit closer, but there's no sense that they're trying to, to take anything or like attack. That would, and that doesn't really work with the way they thought of the gods then. What helps us unlock what's going on is realizing what anybody in the original audience would have known about what we're reading. They would have recognized the location. They, and they would have especially recognized it when we were told the name of the city. What's the name of the city? Anybody know? You're a little bolder. You're wearing masks. Babel? We're in the, the Tower of Babel? It's the interesting thing about your translations. It will say Tower of Babel here, and then it will be, translate the same word everywhere else in your Bible as Babylon. It's the exact same word. The Hebrew word for Babylon is Babel. And the plains that they're on is where Babylon is located. This is the founding of the city of Babylon. And Babylon is famous for a particular type of tower. It's called a ziggurat. It looks like this. Ziggurats were a common form of monuments that would be made in civilizations on the plains where they didn't have high places and mountains to go to. So they built their own. 
and we actually can tell archaeologically uh, what these were for. So, the, first of all, if you look at the names of the ziggurats, we have at least three of them that we know the names of. One is Temple of the Foundations of Heaven and Earth. Another is the Temple that Links Heaven and Earth. And a, th- a third one is called the Temple of the Stairway to Pure Heaven. So, these, one of the things that, you, that we get wrong oftentimes, and I had to look for a while to find a picture like this, because most of the time when you get these, what's the most prominent feature of this building? It's the stairs, right? And often, when you, most pictures that I found, or paintings or images, drawings, there were people all over the stairs. But the fact is, we have no record of anyone ever actually worshiping on a ziggurat. This is supposed to link heaven and earth, it's, you know, but they don't meet the God up here. Nobody worships up there. If you want to go to meet the God, you actually meet him at a temple off to the side here. Because the point of the ziggurat was, it's, it's, a, it's actually a stairway from heaven. It is a down escalator from heaven. The idea is that in the ancient world, the gods, the gods are a lot like cats. You can't assume, <laughs> you can't assume they want to hang out with people, right? Like when they're nice, they're really nice, and when they're angry, they're angry. And you can't always tell which one you're going to get, and you can't, and they don't come when they're called. So getting the gods to come down to your city is like coaxing a cat out of a tree. Okay, so you get a ladder. And you get it as close to the branch as you can. You give them a way to climb down. And then maybe you, I don't have cats, so I don't know if this would work, but it fits the metaphor. Maybe you get something they want at the bottom, like you put catnip or food in it, and you try and coax them down. This is what it was like. This was their thinking about how to get the gods to come down to earth. Is you would build a ladder, you would build a tower to make it as easy as possible for them to come down. And then you have this place at the bottom where you can meet with them, and you put out this awesome spread, this feast that they can eat, and that's how you coax them down. And this was how cities competed, was you would brag, if you're the greatest city, you'd say, yeah, we are the city. If a god is going to come down to earth, they're going to come down to our city. Like, Babylon is the greatest, and so obviously, and we built the greatest tower, so the greatest god lives with us. That's what ziggurats were supposed to do. They were supposed to create this link between heaven and earth so you could meet the god in your temple there. So, everything we know archaeologically and historically about towers in the ancient world, and especially towers in Babylon, tell us that the purpose of towers was to bring gods down to earth. So what that tells us here is that the motivation of these, of these uh, Babylonians is to build a tower so that God can come down to earth, which makes sense if the one thing they're missing right now is the presence of God on earth. So what they're doing in this story is they tried to build a tower that would restore God's presence to the earth. They tried to rebuild Eden themselves. This is what's happening in the story. And this is not the only time this happens in the, tower, in the story of Scripture. It happens at least two more times where we're going to see human beings try to get God to come down on their own terms. Now, whether they're being rebellious here or whether they simply figure out what they, they don't know what to do and they think maybe God's waiting for them. Like, was he going to call or were we going to call? How are we going to connect again? Right? Like, that's, they may, okay, well, well, we'll build a tower so he can come down. Maybe he's waiting for us to make the first move. Somehow, they get the idea that this is the best way to bring God down. And the funny thing is, it works. It actually does bring God down in a kind of humorous way. The next verse says, But the Lord came down to see the city and the tower the people were building. 
one of the commentators pointed out that if you're visualizing this, they're trying to build a tower up to heaven that God can climb down. But God's looking down on it, and it's so far away that he has to come down to earth just to see it. Right? Like, that's how far away they are from their goal that they've set for themselves. Like, they're not, even, they're not even close to reaching heaven. But God comes down to see what they were building, and it said, the Lord said, If as one people speaking the same language they have begun to do this, then nothing they plan to do will be impossible for them. I'm just kind of in the middle of a sentence, or in the middle of, a, of, a, of something God said. But I want to pause here, because I want to try a, to figure out one of the puzzles of this story, which is, what did the, Israel, what did the Babylonians do wrong? They built the tower. Why was building the tower wrong? In each of the stories we've looked at previously, God has explicitly told them not to do the thing that they did. The question is, but God doesn't say don't build a tower. He doesn't say don't move to the east. So what is the problem here? Well, some people will say it's the arrogance, it's the pride thing because they want to make a name for themselves, and that's possible. But in Hebrew, making a name for yourself does not automatically mean you're being arrogant. Uh, making a name for yourself might just mean you want to leave the world better than you found it. Or it might just mean you want to have a family to leave behind. Making a name for yourself can just mean leaving a family. So they could have meant by built, making a name for ourselves, let's leave behind a city that, will, that our kids can be safe in. Or something like that. So it could be something arrogant, but it's not, it, it isn't necessarily something arrogant. So it, the text doesn't tell us that. Another interpretation is to say that they are rebelling against the command because God told them to spread through the land and they're concentrating in one place. But what God is saying in that passage is not a command, it's a blessing. What God says when he says multiply and fill the land, he's not saying, all right, I want you to evenly distribute across the earth and I don't want you to, ever, I don't want you to live together. He's saying that I'm blessing you, you're going to prosper, you're going to continue to grow, your population is going to, con- going to continue to grow, you're going to spread out and you're going to subdue the whole land. There won't be limits to where you can go. That's a blessing. So it's not that they violated a blessing. But we can start to see what's going on here as you, if you follow the imagery and the geography of the story. Because what direction did they go to build a city? They went east, right? They went east and they built a city. Does that sound familiar? Let's rewind to Genesis 3. Adam and Eve, they are living in the garden, which is east, uh, east of Canaan. We're not sure exactly, but it's east of Israel. And God sends them into exile. In what direction does he send them? East. Cain and Abel. Cain kills his brother. God makes him wander. In which direction does he go? East. What does he build when he gets there? A city. Then the, then the flood happens. God sends the flood, and Noah's in an ark. The ark gets picked up and gets deposited where? The mountains of Turkey, which is the north east, northwest corner of the known world. It is as far this way as you can get. And what do they do as soon as they're in, in the very next story? They go east, and they build a city. You see the troubling pattern here. It's like, this actually works really well. When we have worship team practice, and, and Casey brings our daughter Charlie, who's 10 months old, 10 months old, and we set her down, she immediately starts crawling for the edge. And so I come up and I grab her and I take her back and I set her down and what does she do? She immediately heads back to the edge because she, she's sure that she can make it down those steps. 
This is what humanity is doing. They're just going, they're following this disturbing pattern. So you can see Cain in their actions. You can also see Adam and Eve because they're taking it on themselves to do something. Adam and Eve took knowledge. And the, the Babylonians are building for themselves so they can restore this on their, own, on their own terms. None of these are wrong, but they're moves in the wrong direction. Notice what, what God says. He doesn't say that they've done something wrong. He says this is just the beginning of what they're going to do. And if they aren't stopped, then nothing will be impossible for them. So the sin, the problem, isn't necessarily what they're doing now. It's the direction they're moving in. So what happens is God came down and he recognized that they were moving in a danger, they were on a dangerous path. Because think about it. Knowing what we know about human nature, sorry, let me go back. I've, I struggled for a long time. I was puzzled by this thing that God says about, uh, he seems to be worried that humans will be able to do anything, though, that nothing will be impossible for them. Is God threatened? Why does he say that? And I always just kind of skipped over that part because it didn't make sense and made me uncomfortable, and so I ignored that part and, and went with other theories. But that is, the core, that is the reason God acts. And then I realized, as I was studying for this sermon, imagine what it would be like if human beings could do anything they wanted Knowing what we know about human nature, humans having unlimited abilities, unlimited power, is not bad for God. It's bad for us. Right? If there was no checks on your desires, on your decisions, if there were no limitations, what would our lives actually look like? What would our society look like? If there were no limits and we could actually just do whatever we want for however long we want, and there was nothing to limit us, would we be better off or worse? God seems to be saying here that we would be worse off if we could have, if there were no limits on what we could do. And apparently that's possible because he has to intervene. But that's the problem. He's saying they're moving on a trajectory where they're going to be able to do anything they want, and that is bad for them. So, oh, sorry, dangerous path. Dangerous path. So God says, Come, let us go down and confuse their language so they will not understand each other. So the Lord scattered them from there over all the earth, and they stopped building the city. That is why it was called Babel, because there the Lord confused the language of the whole world. From there the Lord scattered them over the face of the whole land. So God confuses their language. Why does he confuse their language? Why does he mix them up? He could, the easiest thing, I mean, the most fitting thing if the problem is a tower is to send an earthquake, right? I can't imagine that they had much in terms of earthquake safety regulations for their building projects. So I probably wouldn't even taken much of one to bring that tower down. That's not what he does. In fact, he does, the, the tower stays up. Like, what, however much they built stays up. What he does is he mixes up their languages. And what does that do? Well, it does two things. First of all, it limits their power. Because the problem, again, isn't the tower. God's not threatened by the tower. His concern is where they're headed. And by mixing up their languages, it means this is the farthest they're going to get in one culture, in one path together. Right, this is it. So he's, he has limited their power by the fact that they can't work together anymore. And he's also thwarted their plans. He has... By mixing up their language now, he's also disrupted this whole one city 
plan that they have. So he shut the door on their, in their face on this thing that they're trying to do. See, here's the thing that, that helps me start out this story. We often, we assume that they must have sinned at the tower because God punished them. But did God actually punish them? How many people were hurt at the Tower of Babel? How many people died? Suffered? Hurt? I mean, I'm sure it felt like a punishment to the people who got dispersed. When God closes doors on us, it often feels like a punishment, or it feels like a failure, but he didn't actually, he didn't actually punish anyone, which is why I don't think they were necessarily sinning, they had, that they had violated a command. They were just on a dangerous path, and God was doing this for, to, to save them. Because he ultimately limits what their he limits their power and he thwarts their plans so that they won't keep going down this path. And I think what we find as soon as we get into Genesis 12, that's when we find a clue about why this was a problem for them to all be in one city. Because God didn't tell them his plan. God usually doesn't tell us his plans. You know, like 99.9% of what God's doing, he doesn't tell us, right? In terms of the specifics, he hasn't told them his plan, but he has one. And we see that plan go into action in Genesis 12. And here's what happens in Genesis 12. Rather than working with one gathering of people, all united in one city, once they're scattered, God chooses one person, one couple. He chooses Abraham and Sarah, and he says he makes a nation out of that one family, and he uses them to be representatives of God to the rest of the world. That's the plan. You know what that depends on? That depends on there being multiple nations. That depends on people being spread out. This was God's design. He was never planning on working with, these, with them all concentrated in one people. God chooses representatives. And so what we see in Genesis 12, God says to Abraham, I will make you into a great nation, and I will bless you. I will make your name great and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you, I will curse, and all the peoples on earth will be blessed through you. See, God already had a plan to bless the nations and to restore his presence to the earth. And he already had chosen who he was going to give the great name to of, of playing the role in accomplishing this. He already had a plan in mind, but that plan was not to choose Abraham instead of the nations. It was to choose Abraham for the sake of the nations because the blessing to Abraham flows to all of them. So ultimately, when God scatters them, he's not punishing them. He's putting them exactly where he wanted them in the first place. Right? That's the result of God's intervention, is that they end up exactly where he wants them to be for the sake of his plan, so that he can bless them. God intervenes so that he could bless them according to his will instead of theirs. Because he had a design, and that design did not involve battle. It did not involve everybody living in one city together. And that's really key for us to remember, as, as this, this story has to lead right into Genesis 12, because Genesis 12 reminds us that God has a plan to do what they were trying to do. He hadn't forgotten about them. He just hadn't informed them of exactly what he was going to be doing. It wouldn't have done them really any good to know anyway. So God has a plan to bless them. He has a plan for their good. He just didn't tell them what it was. But it's actually an act of grace that God stepped in and stopped them before they got too far down this dangerous path. 
where he might have needed to send an earthquake, where an empire would have needed to be overthrown. This is the story of, of the Tower of Babylon. People who try to restore God's plan for themselves, and God stops them. He redirects them because he has his plan to bless them. You remember that we're learning these stories, we're looking at these stories because we are part of the same story. We interact with the same God. The God who doesn't tell us 99.9% of his plan. And we have to decide what we're going to do in those moments when we don't know what the plan is. And this story helps us learn uh, what, how to handle those situations. The first part, thing I want us to learn from this story is God has delegated us great power, and we often misuse it. That may seem obvious, but there's, I want you to recognize there's two ways that we misuse it. One is we abuse it. We are rebellious against God. We are destructive to others. We are sinful. That is one way that we misuse God's power. We abuse it. But another way is that I am a, a finite, broken person wielding power given to me by God. What are the chances that I'm going to use it exactly the way God had in mind every single time? Pretty slim, right? There are probably times that out of the, the positive choices I could have made, I don't make the one that God has in mind. It's not a sin. It's just, I'm not God. Right? And in those situations, I have walked down a path that might lead me to somewhere dangerous. Or might simply lead me to the wrong place. And that's why our limitations are so important. Because if we have the ability to go all... If God leads us to go down whatever path we choose, anytime we choose it, and never intervenes, that's scary, right? That's not what we want. We want to be on the right path. But being on the right path means we have to have limitations. God gives us limits to protect us from ourselves and to keep us in His plan. See, every once in a while, or maybe more often, we run into our own limitations. There are things we want to be able to do that we can't do. Or there are things that we tried to do, but we failed to do. We didn't get in. We didn't accomplish it. We didn't get hired. We didn't, like these things, we had plans and they fell apart. It happens to us all the time. And so often it is easy for us to see those as failures or as punishment. And God does punish. That is a possible interpretation. But, but what we find is that really our limitations are a gift. Because I'll tell you, if I didn't have limitations, I would not be here with you. Because I thought I was supposed to be a professor. So if I had the power to wave a magic wand and get into any school that I wanted, then way back in 2012, I would have gotten into Baylor instead of missing it by one position. And I would have gone there. And I wouldn't have ended up being a pastor. But God gave me a limitation. It wasn't what I wanted at the time, but I am so incredibly glad that that happened. Anybody else grateful that God said no to some of the prayers you've said in the past? Right? That God says no to us. Not only does He say no to us, but He also makes sure that we can't force it. Right? That's our limitations. That's the value there is in limitations. And that, when we recognize that, we can be grateful for our limitations. Because they keep us from being able to circumvent God's plans, be able to force our plans over His. Because ultimately, we are supposed to rule on God's behalf. And ruling on God's behalf means trusting that God's power is greater and that His plan is better. 
It means when I run into my limitations, I trust that God does not have those limitations. And so He is going to make things work out according to His plan. And ultimately, His plan is going to be better. Because I'll be honest with you, at the point when God slammed that, that academic door in my face, if you'd asked me, I would have considered going into ministries a failure. Because it wasn't where I wanted to go. It seemed like second choice. It actually took God a while to work in me to make me ready to make that transition and to realize that this was where God called me to be. And I have to trust that God's plan is better. And now on this end of it, I've discovered that it is. If for no other reason than the family that I have that I wouldn't have had if I went down another path. I've, I've seen so much proof that God's plan is better than mine. And so if we rule on God's behalf. That means that in those moments when doors get slammed in our faces, when it feels like we're failing, when it feels like things aren't going the way we expected them to, even when we think that we were serving God in doing that, we recognize and we trust God is in control. His plan is still moving forward, and His plan is better than mine. It doesn't keep it from feeling like... It doesn't mean that the failures don't hurt or the, the slam doors don't disappoint, but it means that we can keep moving forward trusting God because we rule on His behalf. And another way we can be reassured about this is we can look back to the Temple of Babel, the Temple of Babylon, and we can see how God came through in that moment of uh, when He slammed the door in their faces. What came out of that? Well, in Revelation, we see a picture of the ultimate answer God has to their concern back into the situation of the Tower of Babel. In Revelation, there is a picture in heaven where people are singing about Jesus. And it's, they say, You are worthy to take the scroll and open its seals because you were slain, and with your blood you purchased for God persons from every tribe and language and people and nation. You have made them to be a kingdom and priests to serve our God, and they will reign on the earth. This is the picture that we see of how God ultimately fulfills that plan through Jesus Christ. And it is so much better than God living on a tower in the middle of some city in the Middle East, right? It is so much better than one tower where God interacts with people through a, through a staircase. It is Jesus Christ dying on our behalf and choosing from reuniting the nations through His blood and giving us the ability to fulfill the calling we were always made for and have never quite been able to live up to, to rule this world on His behalf. So God's plan is to restore us to our ultimate purpose through Jesus Christ. And that ultimate purpose is better than anything you could even dream up for yourself. You may not see it that way, with our limited perspective. But the plan, the purpose God has for us is better than any plan you could make for yourself. And we see that fulfillment of what was happening all the way back in Genesis 11. And we can know that the same God is in control of our stories and is leading us. And we can trust in Him to do the same thing. Amen? As we close, I'm going to ask you to consider taking a next step. Maybe you haven't given your life to Jesus and that's the first step I would encourage you to take. Is give your life to Jesus and, and commit to becoming this person that He's made you to be. Commit to being changed into His image and to, to following His path. It's not always going to be easy. It's going to involve closed doors, but it is always going to be the best path you could be on. It is going to lead to you being exactly what you were always designed to be. So if you want to make that decision, we encourage you to come forward during, uh, as we sing the last song, or if you're online, please get in touch with the church. We'd love to hear from you. You can also sign up for a Connect class, and this is how uh, once a month we uh, 
we invite people to come to have lunch after church, and we, um, we talk about who we are, what we do, and how you can become a part of it. The next Connect class is going to be the first Sunday of November. You can check that box on your Connect card if you'd like to sign up for that. We also encourage you to develop greater relationships in our church by joining a small group. And those small groups, they go through the sermon studies and they develop relationships with each other. If you want to be a part of one of those, check the box on the Connect card. And finally, if you want to give back, we encourage you. That is another uh, next step in discipleship. And you can do that by signing up for a service group or especially by signing up to help out with the Chunk or Treat. That's a great way to, to get connected. So we encourage you to make one of those decisions. And we, uh, as we stand and sing this song, please reflect on what God is calling you to do.